I want to see more support for people in uh, less privileged parts of this world. They do see developing as a way out because it is a way to make a living without too much um, upfront investment. And, you know, many hope to do that. So we get many developers in our community saying that, please, we need some support where we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's wonderful to have you here as usual. I hope you're all safe and well. Uh, quick reminder, my book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business, Brand, and Teams is out right now. Go and get it. Go and buy it for your friends. Even if you want to buy a bunch of copies, glue them together and keep your door open. That's fine with me. I don't particularly care. Um, I'm really thrilled to bring on to the podcast today, Christina Voskoglu, who is Director of Research at Slash Data. How are you doing, Christina? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Jono. How are you? I'm ah, tickety-boo, tickety-boo. So let's first of all go through the rap sheet, okay? Because we're going we're gonna to talk about developers, we're going to talk about data and the intersection of both today. And this is such an interesting and such a big topic. Um, so you studied um, economics and statistics at the University of Bath. You also uh, studied at the London School of Economics and Political Science, um, where you studied statistics. Um, you're a data scientist at Ergo Bank, uh, working in the credit cards division. You went on to be at, at Eurobank, where you're a, a, in customer analysis and a campaign manager, a financial planning manager. Uh, you uh, went on to be an independent consultant as well. And then it took you to Slash Data, where you've been for about 10 years. And uh, to my knowledge, you started out as a data operation, data and operations manager, but now you're director of research and you focus on heading research operations at, at slash data. You know, you lead the analyst team, you're shaping product strategy, all kinds of different things to do with data. I think it's, I think it's fair to say that you are a bit of a data expert. Um, and that's why I was so thrilled that you could come on, on the podcast. So yeah, interesting career. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It has been interesting. Uh, also a uh, very odd or, or let's say, very geeky to some people, but yeah, it's nice. Yeah, well, geeky's fun, right? Yeah. Geeky's the new call. Um, so let's start right at the beginning. Um, I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast will be familiar with with data and that data's important. Um, and we'll also be familiar with the fact that data is, there's, there's risk, right? We're, we're, we're always hearing about people's personal data being shared, identity theft, all of these different elements. So just to kind of set the parameters for our discussion, when we're talking about developer data, so tell us a little bit about what you think of when you think about data that relates to people who are building software. So first of all, what's, well, developers are still humans, right? So uh, what's always interesting about there is behavior. So obviously yep. we're steer we steering clear of any uh, personal data there, uh, obviously. Um, but what we really want to understand is what drives uh, their behavior. And by behavior, we mean um, technology selections. Obviously, why will they go for tool X versus Y? Um, and, um, you know, what will make them hop onto the next tool next day and so on? So data to me is really behavioral data and also motivation. So what drives them, drives them to do things and what choices they make. And is the is the 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 thesis here that if you if you can capture data, um, 
again, not personal information about people, and you can understand patterns in that data, that that can help people to have a better relationship with developers? Or like, what's the reason for doing this in the first place? Why even care about data when it comes to developers? Of course. So uh, in my mind, data is a very strong currency uh, in any investment you're trying to make. Um, And, you know, just going, as we say, um, above the line and just doing a broadcast for everyone with the exact same message will basically not work across all regions and so on. Um, Developers are a very diverse set. You really need to understand what will give you the edge. And the thing is that as, and data is relevant in all stages of maturity of an ecosystem. So in the beginning, you need to map the space when you don't, it's, it's fairly new, who is into it, who is likely to go into it and so on, how much money is involved. Um, but as it's, it matures, it's also relevant to understand competitive advantages. Okay. Let me put a concern that I have on the table that I, it's not just my concern, but it's a concern that I think a lot of people have and a lot of people have shared with me. And I refer to it as data fetishism, is that I feel like we're currently in a culture where there is an obsession about tracking everything with hmm. dashboards and dashboards full of metrics and graphs and numbers and, uh, and all of these different things. And I think um, the, the, the philosophy is, well, if we track all of the things, we'll have all of the options available to us to, to your point, Christina, zone in on uh, targeting the right kind of messages to the right kind of people, the right kind of engagement, having a better relationship with people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people feel often overwhelmed by just how much data is out there. So one thing I'd like to start with is like, what do you think are the, like, the two or the three most important things that people who are listening to this should be thinking about when it comes to data and uh, understanding developers, whether they work for them or developers in their open source projects, out of the multitude of things that you can mention, what are the most critical things that people should be caring about? Yeah, first of all, the mastery is in filtering the noise, always. Um, actually, I'm one of those people who hates tracking everything and steps and I don't know what else. People track every day. I don't do that. Um, right. So you really need to make sure, first of all, you're tracking the right audience. So basically, where you start off is not the data. It's the theoretical. It's right asking the right questions. That's the first thing you need to do is define your problem in a very you know, concise way and very specific to the problem you're trying to solve. Um, and that's where you start. So the, this is the most important thing. Just going out there and grabbing whatever data is available, it's not going to lead you anywhere good. And it can be very misleading, actually. Let's walk through a practical example to kind of paint a picture for our audience here. Let's say somebody's got a, a developer product, right? They've, they've built a developer framework um, and they want to attract JavaScript developers to, um, to use their product. So what they're interested in doing is they're interested in getting into the mindset of JavaScript developers, right? So that's their goal. Um, what questions do you think someone in that position should be asking before they start evaluating what data they should be focusing on? What's the first like two or three questions they should think about? What What's the population of interest? Are they sure it's just JavaScript people? It could be, but maybe not. It could be a wider set. Uh, what does JavaScript uh, developer mean anyway? Because developers use multiple tools and languages. So what else are they using? Um, so also 
obviously, once they have come up with a definition based on this question, so who is my audience, who is my potential audience in the future, they need to understand also that they are not in silos, these developers. They also work on other things. So they need to also think what might be affecting their decisions. There's not entirely, perhaps not just their direct competitors, but also the whole ecosystem in which they're active. Because basically choices in other places also affect choices with regards to product X, our hypothetical product. So these are key. And then, of course, you just then go into behavioral stats, like what have they used in the past, what they're trying to achieve, what are the pain points, um, and so on. A common mistake that people make with regards to products is that they track only their own community. They tend, for example, to estimate NPS, Net Promoter Score, based on uh, people who are active on the website. However, by doing that, they miss all the people who have left and they are very likely to be the unhappy ones. So they are showing an artificially high NPS in that way. So this is that's what I'm saying. They need to think at the same time broad. So what is the, the audience that I'm talking to? But also be very specific in defining their audience, but also the potential audience and what else could be affecting the choices of that audience. So, you know, so to kind of play it through then, you know, with our example of somebody who's got a JavaScript framework and they want to attract JavaScript developers. Um, so it sounds like one question here is like, like, who are we going to ask, right? Like there's people who maybe if you're a new company, you don't have an audience. So it could be asking certain people at conferences or it could be um, asking people in certain communities. But then I guess the other question is could be, you know, which frameworks are you using? Are you using jQuery, Angular, uh, Next.js, you know, all of these different frameworks that are out there? Let's say, again, to continue it through, because I think having an example here is just useful, because I think one of the things I struggle with with data is I, I think sometimes it can, be, it, it can be so complicated and it can be a bit abstract. So having an example, I think, is helpful. But let's say you, you're this company and you've, you know, you've got a sense of, uh, of okay, your audience are from some data. You've determined that your audience are primarily um, people who are using Angular, right? For example, mm-hmm. um, and maybe they're people. Let's even get more specific. Like maybe they're people who are based in the Bay Area, for the sake of argument. Okay. Okay. What would you say? Um, you got those two data sets available to you that's not everything you're going to need to make a decision, right? There's going to be probably other bits of data that you're going to want to pull in and understand before you can start thinking about, okay, how do I use this information to effectively reach out to the audience that I'm kind of creating in my mind? How do you fill in those gaps? Like, how do you say, okay, I've got these two bits of data, for example, and now I need to understand the other pieces that are missing before I can start really, you know, creating an action that's actually going to go forward and 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 do something okay so you're referring basically to developer outreach strategy here right um so once you know who you want to target obviously the next question is how do i reach them that's absolutely correct um the point is that the thing is with 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 technology uh with our with our sector anyway um you cannot rely on a single panel or even the same set of people, however diverse that is, over and over again. Sorry, just before you go on, what do you mean by a panel? 
So suppose you can find a partner out there that can offer, um, that pays developers to answer service, for example, um, or or you have your own panel somehow. So there are um, people that you know are always available, and there are even applications and platforms that do that that can answer through that. So you can use them, sure. But so that's like a data set that you can refer to. Is is that panel right? Yes, or yes, yeah. or you can you can always go to these people and ask for to fill in a survey for you. Got it. But right. the, the problem with that is that you can of course use those kind of means, but it's quite important to have as a diverse outreach as you can, because as I said, developers do not come in a single shape and size. So you need to make sure that you also reach, for example, I don't know, students maybe if they're part of your um, audience. Um, so. It's important to go to a very, as broad as you can and get as many data sets as you like. So it's not just about sample size. People get to focus on sample size quite often, which is very, very important. That's why we we strive um, slash data to have a large sample set. But it's not just the size of the samples of the longitudinal sample. It's also the quality, right? Mm. So it's very important that you use multiple resources, multiple sources, actually, and multiple channels to reach developers uh, of every type. And if you do that repeatedly, it's also important that you don't reach out to the exact same people every time because there may be other profiles coming into, pouring into the ecosystem that have a completely different mindset, make different choices. So you're going to miss them if you do that. Right. That makes sense. And so, I mean, slash data, um, you know, do provide a wonderful service and lots and lots of data here. And obviously you're at slash data and do a great job there. Um, I can imagine somebody again, who just, I'm trying always trying to put myself in the position of, of listeners thinking, um, like, when do you know you've got enough? Like, when do you know that you've, <laughs> you've got enough data? Cause you could, this could be an endless, endless train that literally never reaches a station. I know this is a very general question because it's probably going to be somewhat dependent on, on on the goals, but what would your guidance be to someone who says, okay, I've got this JavaScript framework. I'm looking to kind of reach out to developers and attract them to my framework. Um, I've, I've got some data from, let's say, slash data, but I've also run my own survey. I've done some, you know, kind of back of the napkin kind of uh, discussions with people. Um, do I have enough right now or do I need to do something else before I can actually start? again action right so unfortunately there's no single answer here it really depends on what you're trying to do um it could be if you're just beginning you and you don't even know what to ask let's take it from there do you know what to ask okay you have all these all these people you can go to um maybe it's worth just doing a pilot for example and having just a handful of people and doing interviews for them so that you understand what to then include in a quantitative study Once you get into quantitative study, it also depends how far down you want to go when chopping the data into smaller pieces. So if you want to start doing segmentation and some really uh, serious segmentation, you cannot just have 500 people. You probably need quite a lot. Um, So it really depends if you want to do, for example, first split developers into regions because you also have this product, but you also have the regional managers of that product, right? And they want some information too. They cannot end up with having information out of 20 folks, right? So, but if you just want a a rough first idea, global, whatever, and you don't care that much about accuracy, you could begin with something small like 500. But that's, again, 
it depends what 500 he may be very far off so there's a lot of questions yeah um i mean it seems like part of the challenge here is um as we kind of open up the onion more and more there are more and more questions um I can imagine that for some people, there may be some anxiety about, okay, well, I'm not entirely sure um, how to answer these questions. So how would you recommend somebody um, goes about knowing, like if, if, I think what you're saying is completely reasonable, like you, you, you can't give a blanket statement that, um, you know, this is the number, because <laughs> yeah, <of course laughs> right? so. every, every scenario is different, of course. But for somebody who's trying to figure out how to solve it for them. Like, do you recommend that they hire a consultant or how do they figure out what's the right answer for them? Yeah, they definitely need a research consultant. Um, and again, um, size does matter in uh, data sets. For example, that's why we strive to have more than 17,000 uh, responses in our samples and we don't stop until we get that number. Right. But that's because we are asking questions across um, 11... Uh, development areas, right? So, and within those, we want to go, not all developers will answer those, and of course. So the, the sample thins out. Um, I don't think anyone can give you just a simple answer before actually looking into the problem. That's what I'm saying. Data is yeah. very, very important, but the whole discussion actually does not start with data. It starts with setting the right context, understanding what the problem is and asking the right questions. And I find that people usually uh, need help doing that. They're not entirely sure. In most cases, it's not very clear, especially if it's a new product, who they're talking to. They may have some ideas. So an example I usually give you, say, suppose you have this new ML uh, machine learning tool, right, platform or other. Um, who's your audience? Is it just ML developers? No. Because there, there are many people who are trying their hand and they will try to, say, for example, I don't know, incorporate some work in their own application, use an ML API, whatever. So you have to be very careful and know how to do that before getting your hands dirty with data. Because if you formulate your problem in the wrong way, then whatever data you get is not going to give you the right answers. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess data is in it's in service of a broader goal, isn't it? Like it's of fundamentally course. it's one piece. You, you mentioned earlier, Christina, about uh, segmentation and mm -hmm. audience segmentation, and uh, you know, this is, I'd, I'd like to kind of pull on this thread a little bit because I think it's so important. Um, we've we've seen it very important, for example, in marketing. Um, it's very critical when I'm working with companies around building communities as well. Like there is no single set of clothes for everybody, right? Like everybody's everybody's different. Um, when you think about developer segmentation, um, I mean, this seems like it can spin out into a billion different areas because, I mean, even if you just look at, for example, front-end and back-end developers, uh, which is not the entire developer space, you can then start subdividing those definitions into further segments. And and again, I think that there's a tension with segmentation that I've seen across multiple industries of like, how do you pick a level of segmentation that is workable and is detailed enough uh, without subdividing into a billion different segments and then your life becomes incredibly painful and complicated? <laughs> so what are the kind of the, 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 the philosophical and the practical recommendations you would make in how someone thinks about developer segmentation? 
So first of all, let the data speak and tell you what the, what are the important dimensions that make developers behave differently. Um, you should aim for something like, so the golden rule is something between um, three and ten is actually a lot, but nine, something like that should be where you should aim more for, for segments. That's the number of segments you're saying, ideally three to nine, right? Yeah, and not too small or not too big. So if you end up with a segment that has like 60% of your population in it, it sort of beats the purpose, right? It's nearly identical to your whole. And if you have something that is 0.01, of your population, it's also useless because you're never going to find these people and they're not going to bring any value to you even if you try. So you need something that is reasonably big, not too big, and not that many segments. Now, the key um, challenge with segmentation is to um, create segments that actually make sense because you mentioned marketing. Um, so um, when we were, you know, we're in my previous um life, as I call it, we used to um, create campaigns, but we were feeding those through uh, recommendation systems. They were not called that yet. It was the early 2005 or something. Um, and that's easy because the machine is reading it, and that's fine. So you don't, nobody needs to understand exactly what it's doing. However, if you're talking to a marketing team, and then whatever you do, uh, you have as an output of a segment, then you need to hand it over to a marketeer to actually create a persona out of it and put a picture on it and a name on it and so on. It has to be something that makes sense. And in most cases, believe, believe me, that's a challenge. Um, but it has to be done. So we do have a technique of doing that. So identifying, uh, running models, identifying uh, clusters that um, behave in the similar, their members behave in a similar way, so homogeneous segments, and they're very different from each other. And then see how these segments actually um, behave with respect to the, the technology choices that you're interested in. So for our JavaScript uh, example there, uh, we'll create segments and see if they're different in their choices of their likelihood of picking that product, of using that, that tool. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Are, are you seeing... Um... I mean, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about the work that you do and the rest of the team at Slash Data is, you know, uh, you know, you're kind of, I, I don't know what the right, I was going to say the oracle uh, of, <laughs> uh, of, uh, of kind of developer sentiment and behavior. But then I was thinking, I don't mean Oracle, the database company. <laughs> I mean, Oracle, like in the matrix kind of thing. Like you've got so right. much wisdom available to you that you can kind of look into what, are you seeing kind of common segments that are just manifesting across the broader industry? Like, are there five developer roles that we see? Like, what's your take there? Yes, I actually, um, we actually run um, a model across everyone because, um, you know, just to, to test the methodology when we started. Um, and yeah. we did come up with uh, some segments. Um, of course, when you start you know, looking into specific populations. So not all developers, but just front-end developers, for example, or just back-end developers or whatever. You make up with different ones. But what was interesting um, was that the segments we came up with were very closely related to the evolution, the journey of a developer. And we didn't, we didn't do that. It just came up from the data. You know, at, at a high level, it made sense that such a high-level model that just took everybody in. Uh, it could be different when you start being more specific, uh, but it was quite interesting to see, you know, 
the students and then the young professionals and so on until they experienced uh, decision makers. So yes, you can you can have them, but you know it's better to run your own segmentation for your audience. What would you say? I mean, I know this is kind of a, a bit of an offhand question, and I understand if you don't have the answer to it, but I'm just curious. Like in in the work that you're doing with your clients slash data, and just generally being familiar with that data set uh, with with the data that you got available. Like what trends are happening right now that you think are particularly interesting? Like what developer trends? It could be behavioral, it could be technology, but like, can you give us something? Can you give us a bit of insight into what you're seeing? Yeah. So one interesting thing is that they are spilling out from the technology industry, software, going into the verticals. So we see more and more movement into other industries. Um, the APIs obviously have opened a whole new world. Um, so um, in, in a number of ways, I mean, um, we have all the startups building APIs, therefore a new ecosystem has sprung around that. Um, but there's also, you know, verticals or banks or whoever else that realize that they can uh, monetize on that as well. So they, instead of outsourcing stuff, they start hiring developers. So you see there's more and more demand, and we, we keep on hearing that um, people are trying to understand how to best hire developers, and they're not from the software technology thing. So that's one. Point. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that developers previously would have wanted to work for a tech company in building tech. So go and work at a Facebook or a Google or a Microsoft or a Tesla, someone like that. But it sounds like more and more developers are actually going into, you know, financial services and maybe gaming and, um, you know, maybe fashion and what like companies and places like that, where they are building technology for a non-technical market. Is that correct? Yes, that is. Of course, you we always had developers in the non-technical world. You always had IT departments, right? Yeah, right? But what what is happening now is that we're seeing another segment that is not the strict IT personnel kind of um, profile, uh, but they're moving into other industries and maybe they are building their own small um, startup in that industry selling, I don't know, financial APIs, for example. If you ask them, they're into the financial world, not the technology world. So uh, that, that's what I mean. Um, so that is kind of a new trend of the last few years, which I find very interesting. So it's basically going into everything. Yeah, no, very interesting. Um, so are there any negative trends that you've noticed? Like, I mean, it, th that kind of seems to be just a kind of a sea change. Like, I forget who said it. Somebody said this to me years ago. I wish I could remember, but I have the brain the size of a peanut. Um, <laughs> that, you know, basically everyone's having to become a software company, right? Like, it, yeah. I mean, I bought a smoker. And it connects to the internet and I can track my smoker on my phone, right? And that means that Traeger have got to have a software development team, which might be one person, uh, you know. Um, but everybody's becoming a software company. And imagine that's one of the reasons why we're seeing that trend. Are you seeing any concerning trends um, with developers, uh, whether it's um, from a demographics perspective or an inclusion perspective or whether it's from people leaving? 
um, or a reduction in developers or anything like that? No, it's um, I cannot think of any red flags right now. Um, in fact, it's good to see um, more and more women in technology since you're um, touched on inclusion. Um, we do get the the concern uh, from developers from developing countries that they do not have all the access they would wish for uh, in their countries. Um, and, you know, we have also, that's why we have tried to also support communities uh, in Africa, for example, um, for coding. Um, so that that would be, I guess, one thing. It's not, if we look at things, uh, the regional, from a regional lens, we tend to think that the whole planet is same way, I don't know, the Western world is, but that's not the case. Um, so I would see... I want to see more support for people in uh, less privileged parts of this world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and actually, um, they do see developing as a way out because it is a way to make a living without too much um, upfront investment. So, and, and, you know, many hope to do that. So we get many developers in our community saying that, please, we need some support where we are. So that would be one concern. Um, but I think that was always there, so that's not a new thing. And I'm hoping that now their voices are gradually being heard and they will be getting eventually the support that they need. Yeah. You know, one thing that's uh, that's been widely commented on for a number of years is the, the gender difference um, in tech. Yeah. Very, very male dominated, and especially in certain sectors, um, like in open source, for example, uh, I think it's getting better now. But for many, many years, it was very, very small number of of, of women uh, in technology, uh, in open source specifically. Have you noticed any changes there from a from a from a from a gender perspective? Um, are we seeing more women c- kind of coming into tech and and doing development work and things like that? Yes, we do, and I actually can give you a number on that. So currently, Ooh, we like numbers. <laughs> so we used that used to be around ten percent. Uh, being okay. um, you know now it's up to around fourteen. Oh, cool! Uh, so in a couple of years, I think that's that's increase. Um, so it is getting better, which is really good. Um, but it's not universal. It's not you know the same across everything. So it's in some sectors that we see uh, women being more active than others. And these are usually the more creative roles, for example, uh, or the more creative industries where tech is uh, required, or they move on to taking a more, you know, tech product manager kind of role, that kind of thing. Yeah. So more business-like. Um, I'm afraid if you look at the really hardcore, um, I don't know, um, backend something, developer, um, that's still a lot lower than that i mean it's still male dominated by far yeah no absolutely absolutely so switching gears a little bit one of the things i'd like to talk about is is lifetime value Mm -hmm. so i know that comparing marketing and comparing developers is not an accurate comparison it's you know apples and oranges um but there's this notion in business and especially in marketing of the lifetime value of 
uh, of a customer. When you talk about, because I know you've talked previously about lifetime value when it comes to developers slash data has, other people have. What do you define as lifetime value? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. First of all, um, this is something that's very close to my heart because I used to work on that um, in my um, past job. Um, but uh, when it comes to developers, it's not as straightforward as um, it is when calculating lifetime value for your own customers. It's not. It's, you don't have just their transactions, whether they use their products or not, and what value they bring. So first of all, the definition is how much value do you expect a developer to bring to you once onboarded. Yeah. But that once onboarded part is a bit tricky in the case of developers because we're not talking about a client base, we're talking about a community. Mm. So the value it does not is not just the direct value from using your product because they bought it or subscribed to it or whatever. It's that plus all the indirect value that comes from all the network effects. For example, what is the value of an influencer? Hmm. They're all out there trying to, um, big vendors to have influencers in place. Why? I mean, what is the value that each of those influencers brings at the end of the day? Um, that's an interesting um, thing we're working on right now. Um, <clears throat> and also in the community, what's the value of a developer in your community, right? It's not just, many, many of the products are just free to use. It's them bringing and users to you at the end of the day. So that's another difference as compared to traditional lifetime value calculations. Because it's not just them. In some, some many cases, it's not they're, they're not the final client. They're not the final user, right? They're building right. an ecosystem for you so that you can sell your technology to end users. Right, right. So lifetime value in classic terms would be how much can you expect someone to spend? Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is that there's a there's a there's a whole lot of intangible value, such as the work that a, an evangelist will do, an ambassador will do, that mm-hmm. is part of lifetime value. How do you get to that lifetime value with with with, with those intangible pieces? I certainly have never been able to figure it out, but maybe you. Know. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we're working on it, as I said. Um, so it's not the written stone right now, but we do have an idea as to um, how many developers participate in decision-making. So we do know if they have a role um, that um, allows them to uh, influence this, uh, technology choices and purchasing decisions, right? So... Um, you know, you get to see how how much value they bring and how, depending on how many of those you have, how many more you have, let's say, other clients, and therefore try to get a ratio of how many new developers you get for each one of the decision makers that you have. It's not exact science right now. You cannot, it's indeed intouchable and very difficult, uh, but um, it's worth um, evaluating and that's the challenge and the beauty of it. Because as I said, yeah. it's not it's not the same as, you know, this is my client base, this is the historical data on how they have behaved over the past X years, and therefore I can sort of track their uh, expected lifetime and the value that they will bring in that lifetime, and that's the end of the story. It doesn't yeah. work that easily in this case. It is it is honourable work, uh, and I wish you the very best with it. But it's a bloody hard problem to solve, isn't it? I mean, it's it uh, yeah. Do you think it's a solvable problem? Because um, a little bit of context, one of the things I 
um, spent quite a lot of time thinking about about a year and a half ago was what the ROI on a community member is hmm. in a community. And I sat down and created the world's most complicated spreadsheet. And I was trying to come up with ways of measuring the different elements of, for example, a community experience. And I think we can apply the same kind of principles to a developer. So like with a community member, it can be the value that they consume, but then it's the value that they can create, such as, you know, if they um, are creating blog posts or if they're speaking at events, or even if they just join an event and they are networking with people and they're getting to know people or how they share that community with, with, with their friends and other people. Um, and one of the, the, one of the contentions that I landed on here was there are ways to measure impact, mm-hmm. but then fundamentally there's got to be a comparison of impact. So for example, if we're, if we're trying to define the, the ROI of a community member, so, you know, what do you get out of finding a community member and bringing them into your community? And I draw the same comparison to a developer. One community may- member may just hang out in your forum and a- answer people's questions, but another community member may be writing code in GitHub and writing software. So because these people are all part of the same community, you've got to then compare the people answering questions with the people writing uh, code in GitHub. And to me, that's like comparing the value of two children <laughs> like that they're, they're so different in very different ways and by the way i know that could have sounded incredibly condescending that people in communities are our children i didn't mean it that way no, people I'm are going to be sure about this. i know you wouldn't you wouldn't think that christina because you're a very reasonable and very friendly person but that was the contention that i really wrestled with mm-hmm. how what, what's your thinking about how to kind of like square that particular circle you know the um, the trap let's say in this kind of work, is that you may be tempted to get in too much detail. <clears throat> Excuse me, as you said, someone who is writing a blog post versus someone who is doing something else. I don't know. So um, I think um, the whole point is to realize at which level of granularity you need to stop and instead use macro, macro level de- data rather than micro. Yeah, yeah. And I think the whole point is the whole master, let's say it's it's combining the two. Where do I use granularity in which aspects of this calculation versus um, where do I just try to estimate instead of having nothing at all for indirect value, for example, can I get to a good enough estimate without having any illusions that I will get it absolutely right? Because there's no way, as you said, to go so deep um, and be so granular. So I think the whole point is to decide where you draw the line. Because at the end of the day, you also need to think about the ROI of such an exercise, of the exercise itself, right? So it needs the, to stop. The better question. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, academically speaking, we could be analyzing this forever, but... Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the thing is that, you know, you cannot keep on analyzing things. Um, and actually, my early career, that was that was an issue. I, I could see, you know, my, my manager and so on just doing things on the back of the envelope. I was horrified being a statistician and that science and all that. But then I realized that, some, you know, for some things, yes, it just the back of the envelope will do, you know. It's true. Sometimes, yeah, there's a snobbery in parts of the world hmm. that good enough is never okay, right? And yeah. uh, everything has to be done to the fullest extent. And I think, like, to your point, 
sometimes it's okay to just do the back of the napkin and for it to be it to, for it to be good enough. Um, I guess the, the, the again the the tension there is, um, I think you're a hundred percent right because I think maybe the 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 mistake that I was making when I was analyzing this was I was I was going too deep in terms of detail mm. and I was getting myself tied in knots because of this, which is absolutely believable. Um, but where do you draw the balance between, um, let's say you end up on that developer lifetime value and you go through all of the machinations to figure out how to do that. And then, so you get to a certain number or a certain uh, value statement. Um, if it's not accurate enough, people won't consider it to be useful information. It'll be, it'll mm -hmm. be considered not- of course. Uh, of no value in itself uh, but if it's if you if, like you said if it's too detailed then you can't solve the problem what's your thinking in terms of getting it good enough but also good enough that people will actually buy into the number and that they'll care about it yeah because that's a tricky one right it is um and just to be clear i don't mean that this is solved on the back of a napkin it's just that yes, for, for yeah. some things you cannot actually if you go very deep and very detailed it's there's no guarantee that you will end up with something more accurate in fact you may be heading in the very wrong direction without knowing it um so as long as you attach a level of confidence to what you're doing people will know whether to accept what you give them or not. At the end of the day, that's all what statistics is, is the, the science of quantifying uncertainty, right? That's how it's defined. If we were certain about something, we would not be trying to estimate. Model, by definition, is something that is incomplete, imperfect. Model means imperfect. So, but as long as you have some acceptable uh, margin of error there, um, people will estimate. The question is, how do you estimate that margin of error? Well, again, it depends on the exercise, whether you're using data to do it, whether you're using statistics, you know, how many data points, a time series on publicly available data, for example, or whatever else. So yep. I guess that's the answer. Yeah, no, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? And I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth, Christina, but um, it feels to me like these really meaty problems where there is no clear outcome are the most exciting ones right they're, they're oh, like yes. things like this I'm, i bet you're having an absolute <laughs> blast working on this stuff right oh yeah i absolutely love it yeah 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 i hope people understand what i what i'm saying in the end because there was always a problem but never mind yeah i'll try well no i th i i think i think it's i think and again i think you're doing god's work i think it's really important um as we kind of bring this into the into the finish line what do you think we need to see for data to have more um, impactful role on people? Because the the one thing that that again worries me a little bit about about data is I, I feel like there is a there is a mindset there is a a certain personality out there that is data driven that is um, um, basing their decision making on effective use of data. And um, and often they get wonderful results when they do so. Again, to compare it back to a marketing context, one of the reasons why I think digital marketing has become so successful is because you can track every step of a funnel. Um, but uh, there's a lot of people out there that uh, data makes them nervous and they don't quite understand it. They don't know where it fits into their world. What do you think needs to happen for, to, to attract those people and to bring those people into the tent? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... 
So of course you need to understand why they're scared of data. Um, and just to be clear, you need to be not to be scared, but you need to be careful with data. Don't as you as we know that I can lie very much so. Um, so yep. it's very important that you get the right data, the right data, or perhaps the right people that you can that can advise you on how to use data and what data to use. Um, right. What I would say to these people is just show them some hard stats that prove that a data-based approach actually yields a far higher ROI for the campaign. So, for example, in the past, I have seen that if you run targeted campaigns versus um, going out there with a single message across everything was something like 70, up to 70% higher return uh, on your money. Mm. So I think that is a strong argument in favor of data instead of just doing whatever um, idea comes in your head. Um, the other argument is, okay, you heard some anecdotal evidence left and right. How do you know it's not just the opinion of someone out there that is not shared by everybody else? Would you just put your money into something that you don't know is broadly accepted as the truth or not yes. the truth, the, the the preference, let's say. So, yeah, um, you know that's that's the main argument. Just showing people, and we can show it. As I said, we have data like that. That um, based on, so you need data to map your space. First of all, uh, some people say, "Yeah, I know it's just me and another two people." Great. Um, you know how your market is growing. You need to capture all the fine details that you cannot just observe just out there day by day, you know, who else is coming into your ecosystem, in your market? Um, what would they be interested in? So that kind of thing. So A, it's about growing um, your share, and B, uh, increasing your ROI by investing in the right activities and talking to the right people. So, for example, we see a lot of people run too many events and conferences that developers don't really care about. They care about different things, different types of activities. And um, slowly we see people actually adjusting our clients, adjusting their strategies based on that. So there's there's many ways to prove that they should be using data. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and it seems like now more than ever is such a great time for for data for insights for learning like it's yeah i think we just love i mean i'm ever the optimist but we just live in an era where we've got such wonderful rich access to information um both in terms of how we develop skills but also how we learn about what our audience thinks and is interested in and you know it's more accessible than ever before um yeah i i really appreciate you coming on christine why don't you just share a little bit about um Slash data, like I'd love to, you know, people who are listening may not be familiar with Slash data and what you do. And I, I think you're a wonderful company. You do some really amazing work. Um, Thank you so much. Why don't you yeah. share a little bit about, yeah, share a little bit about what you do, what you offer, those kinds of things. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so we um, are uh, analysts of the developer economy. So we run, we survey developers twice per year at a minimum. And every time we reach more than 17,000 developers globally, so more 160 countries, that is. And we ask them um, about uh, what they're building, why they're building it, so what motivates them to 
build how they select their tools um, and how happy they are with those tools. So, and also yep. what they're learning, where they're going next, and so on. Um, we track what 10, 11 uh, technology areas such as uh, mobile, desktop, IoT, ML. Uh, it's a long list. I won't list them all. Um, and yeah, so what the value that we add is help people understand uh, how to reach developers, where to find them, uh, what's the right messaging, how happy developers are uh, with um, with your tools and you know, the competitors also, um, and where the next opportunity lies, really. So also yeah. how to segment them. Again, um, we have helped many um, clients build their own segmentation models um, yeah. to understand their audience and so on. So that's what we do in a nutshell. Very cool. And also Slash Data puts on the Future Developer Summit, which is an incredible oh, yeah. event. Um, um, yeah, just an amazing set of speakers, great panel discussions, just really Thank rich you. conversations, which, uh, yeah. And, and it's on uh, this Wednesday on the, on the 10th. So Yeah, it's very exciting. So uh, good stuff. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Where, do, where, where should we point people towards if they want to go and find out more? Thank you, Joe. So just go to slashdata.co um, and uh, you can also uh, contact uh, marketing at slashdata.co and, um, you know, we'll be in touch. Just fill in the form or get in touch directly. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Well, thank you. And all the very best in trying to figure out this developer lifetime value thing. If anyone can do it, Christina, you're, you're our person. Oh, thank you for the vote of confidence, John. <laughs> of course. All right. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.